Politics as Usual is a global partners governance podcast brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Hello and welcome to episode five of Politics as Usual. This episode, my guest is Andrew Feinstein. Andrew is a former ANC MP who was thrown out of the ANC for pursuing corruption inside the ANC, particularly around an arms deal that the South African government did towards the end of the 1990s worth around $10 billion, and which many people at the time felt the South African government didn't really need. And Andrew tells a story about how he started as an ordinary member of parliament on the committee investigating this arms deal and how what started out as a largely technical exercise quickly developed into a highly politically charged and sensitive investigation into corruption at the upper levels of the South African government. Andrew tells that story about how they slowly realised how far the tentacles of corruption had spread within the government, but also about the efforts of senior figures within the government and within the ANC to get him to stop, to quietly drop the accusations of corruption. He didn't, and as a result was thrown out of the ANC and subsequently had to leave South Africa entirely. Since then, he has been a relentless campaigner against corruption, particularly around the global arms trade, and in the last few years has published two highly readable books, which I'd absolutely recommend. The first, After the Party, about that that experience of being in the ANC's experience as an MP and that arms deal. And the second one, which has subsequently, subsequently been turned into a film, The Shadow World Inside the Global Arms Trade, which is a fascinating book about how the global arms trade works and uh, some of the conversations he has had with arms dealers around the world, which are eye-opening, to say the least. However, uh, in line with the the sort of politics as usual thing, we also talk about how Andrew got into politics in the first place, how he was a community activist and campaigner under apartheid, and how he got sucked into politics, became an MP, and his first experience of working under the presidency of Nelson Mandela as a as a, a directly elected politician. Apologies for the sound on this interview. I, I sometimes sound like I'm talking from the bottom of a well. Um, uh, minor glitch, but you can hear Andrew perfectly, which is, is the main thing. And in usual fashion, this starts off uh, as a bit of a ramble with the important subject of how you pronounce his name properly. Feinstein, mm. rather than Feinstein. Why? Why isn't it? Why isn't it? You're playing. You're, you're mm. taking liberties with vowels. <laughs> Should I be Feinstein? Feinstein. Yeah. One of the two. What it, what it actually is is Feinstein. Right. Okay. Um, but everybody pronounces it differently, so I go by whatever I'm called. <laughs> um, but the way I don't know the way my parents always pronounced it was Feinstein. I have no idea right. why. Yeah. And where were your parents from? So my father's family was from what is today probably sort of Lithuania, Latvia. Mm-hmm. His parents fled pogroms in the 1890s wow. and bought passage, they thought, to New York. But they were literally just dropped in Cape Town. 
They had no idea where they were going, why they were going, and they had to make a life for themselves in South Africa. And my mom was from Austria. She was Viennese. She was one of very few Jews to actually survive the war in Vienna itself. You told, actually, you told yeah. me the story before. Yeah. yeah. And then they met here post-war. They met in London and got together here and then went to live in South Africa. Yeah. yeah. We should probably start. Yeah, but, let's. Um, uh, I was gonna, they, they, uh, it's difficult to know where to start because there's a lot of stuff <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about, about the, your uh, past in the ANC, mm. uh, the book on the global arms trade, and now the film, yeah. uh, which is, has just come out. Um, all of these things are tied together and it's very difficult to unpick it to get to get a proper thread. But what about starting with um, how did you be, how did you become interested in the global arms trade in the first place? Not by choice. <laughs> um, so I was an ANC MP from 1994 and my primary responsibility in Parliament was on the financial management side. So I chaired a committee that drafted the sort of framework legislation for a new financial management system for the country. When we came into office in 1994, we had a budgeting and financial management system that we'd inherited from the British during the Second World War. So it was extraordinarily secretive, incredibly inefficient, but served the purposes of the apartheid state, so they kept it. Yeah. So I chaired the committee that drafted the legislation that replaced all of that, something called the Public Finance Management Act. And once that was done and it was Im implemented, um, I became the senior ANC member on the main financial oversight committee, which was part of this whole accountability circle mm. that we'd now legislated. Um, the Public Accounts Committee, very similar to the way such a committee functions in the UK or in Westminster-style mm. systems. And I knew absolutely nothing about not just the arms trade, but even about the Defense Department in mm -hmm. South Africa. I never covered that vote on the Public Accounts Committee. A colleague of mine did. But we received a report from the Auditor General suggesting that there was prima facie evidence of massive corruption in an arms deal, a very controversial arms deal that the country had signed in '99. Um, in which we spent about $10 billion, um, at the time about 70 billion rand, on weapons um, that many in South Africa claimed we didn't really need and that we've barely used mm -hmm. since we bought them. Um, and this came to my committee. And this was a, it was an extraordinary committee. It didn't operate on party political lines. We never voted. It ran by consensus. We never discussed policy. We only discussed the use of money and whether it conformed to the financial management legislation. So it was, it was a great place to be working in Parliament. And when we got this report, even though I could see immediately that it was politically incendiary, we dealt with it in exactly the same way. So we started investigating. We did it across party lines. So it was technical rather than political. Absolutely. And we discovered there was even more corruption than the Auditor General had suspected. But as soon as we, as soon as um, my senior colleagues in Parliament got wind of what we were doing, they got very edgy. 
So our chief whip, the ANC chief whip, who had been chair of the defense committee at the time of this deal, tried to stop us doing anything. He, it was extraordinary. We were having a, a big public hearing in Parliament where we called officials from all over the country. And quite literally five minutes before the hearing was, prepared, was, was due to start, the chief whip called myself and a very senior colleague of mine, um, a veteran of Robben Island, he'd been in prison on Robben Island for decades, a chap called Lalu Chiba, called us to his office and said to us, look, comrades, you know this, this investigation you're doing into this arms thing? I really don't think we should be doing this publicly in Parliament. I think we should deal with it privately in the party. Mm. And I said to him, well, unfortunately, we have a public hearing scheduled for sort of five minutes time and he said no no we should definitely cancel that and we explained to him that it would um, be what what we term in terms of the legislation fruitless expenditure because we'd brought these people from all over the country to this hearing went ahead and I realized we were going to be under political pressure immediately so we very quickly created a five agency investigating team to start what would have been the most comprehensive corruption investigation in South Africa's history. Mm. And when the ANC got wind of this, they got very angry. And they tried in all sorts of different ways to persuade me to stop the investigation. Mm -hmm. First, using people I was very close to in the party, people who recruited me into the ANC when it was still a banned organization in the 1980s in South Africa. Um, and when that didn't work, I was eventually called in by the presidency. And they effectively said to me, you've got a choice. You can try and continue this investigation and we'll kick you out of parliament. Which in terms of South Africa's pure PR system, proportional representation system, they can do. And they said, oh, you can make this investigation go away and you'll have a glittering political career for decades to come. Mm -hmm. And I was very young at the time. How, um, how old were you? I was uh, 2000... I, mean, I was in my early 30s right. um, and one of the younger MPs by, by quite a distance. And so, we, you know, I stuck by my guns. I thought and said publicly that I'd signed an oath to the Constitution and to the rules of Parliament, not to my party. And that my first concern had to be with the Constitution and the national interest. Um, and so first they kicked me off the committee that I led, but I still went to committee meetings because as an MP, you have the right to sit in on any committee in parliament. And I continued to ask questions about the deal and it was extraordinary. So, so you could, you could turn up actually and be an active member of oh, the yeah. committee still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> no, we had these strange rules of parliament, which have since been adapted probably because of me. But at that point, as an MP, you could go to any committee and you could participate, even if so you weren't a member. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, you know, if, if I was interested in the intelligence, well, no, in fact, intelligence was the only committee you couldn't right. do this on for obvious reasons. But if I was interested in the Trade and Industry Committee, but I wasn't a member, I could still go along. And if there was an issue I wanted to ask about, I could participate. Yeah. yeah. But they, then, as I say, they changed that rule. Um so I'd go along and I'd ask questions. And at the end of every meeting, as I walked out of the room, there'd be whips at the door. And they'd say to me, Comrade Feinstein, because in the ANC we yeah, still called each yeah. other comrades. Um, on behalf of the, the chief whip, 
we have to institute disciplinary proceedings against you because you've been told not to talk about this matter. And I would say to them, well, unfortunately, I don't recognize the authority of the chief whip on this matter because I had since discovered that he had received various benefits while he was chair of the defense committee from a number of the bidding defense companies. So they then never knew what to do. Um, and that went on. I mean, it was crazy. It went on for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. And eventually they told me they were going to kick me out. And so what they did is they also put whips into the committee who then started voting on party political lines. Mm -hmm. And they voted down any investigation and any further involvement by the Public Accounts Committee in this matter. So it really undermined the parliamentary system. But that was how I got started. So, but that, And that arms mm. deal, the, did you have a sense there of, you mentioned the chief whip, who yeah. potentially got kickbacks from, from this arms deal, and various people were being, clearly getting money from, from the arms deal as it was done. Did you get a sense of how far that had spread within the government, within the ANC at that point? I very quickly got a sense of how deep it ran. And that happened in the following way. A member of the party's National Executive Committee, which was our primary body, it, it was the most important um, political party body in the ANC, invited me to lunch at his home one weekend and said, look, Andrew, this is a battle you cannot win. And I said to him, what do you mean? And he said, you need to understand, part of the bribes, and we eventually established that $300 million of bribes were paid on this deal wow. to officials, to politicians, to intermediaries, and unfortunately to the ANC itself. So this guy said to me... So the party actually... The party benefited. benefited. And he said to me, so I said, but why is everyone going to close ranks around this? And he said, well, because we partly funded our second democratic election campaign in 1999 on some of the bribes paid in the deal. And that's when I realized that even if individuals hadn't taken money, at least the knowledge of the fact that there were bribes and what they were being used for went to the very top of the party. Yeah. And when I investigated further, once I'd left Parliament, it became clear to me exactly how that had happened and the involvement of particular individuals, including... Uh, then President Thabo Mbeki, who was deputy president at the time, who had personally negotiated certain controversial deals, even though I have no evidence that he benefited personally. Mm. Um, but that certainly benefited the party materially. And, you know, the defense minister, the head of the defense force at the time, the head of procurement in the defense force at the time, our head of what were called public enterprises, state-owned companies, um, because the state arms company was, was very involved in the deal. All of these people, amongst many others, benefited materially from the deal. And it was it was shocking to me so did to you discover not, this. I mean, did you not worry once you realised the scale of this? I mean, mm. you mentioned earlier that, you know, your career was at risk, but yeah. surely at a certain point it must have become quite frightening. Um and especially being in the ANC, you know, this was the, you were yeah. part of the struggle. You were, yeah. you know, yeah, these, these were your comrades yeah. who you fought, you know, apartheid with and became uh, an MP with alongside. And it just, yeah, the, the, you must have worried at certain points about what you were doing. Did you, did you waver at any point about oh, what yeah. you were doing the right thing? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I suppose where the worry came from is having 
effectively thrown in my lot with the ANC when I was in my late teens. Yeah. I started working in townships just outside Cape Town when I first went to university. And that's where I came into contact with ANC underground structures um, and started working quite closely with them. Um, and a movement like the ANC, it wasn't a political party. It was a liberation movement. It was an incredibly broad church. And it felt, you know, as much as it was a political cause and a political struggle, it also somehow felt like your extended family. Mm. And so to go against the wishes of the parliament, of the party was incredibly difficult for me. Um, and yeah, there was a point, there was, there was a, an awful moment where um, while I was still on the public accounts committee as the senior ANC member, all of the ANC members on the committee with the most senior whips in the party and the Speaker of Parliament and the Speaker of our upper house, the National Council of Provinces, asked me to come to a meeting. And when I arrived at this meeting, the Speaker told me that they had arranged a press conference that I was going to give. And they'd also prepared a statement that I was going to read out. And in the statement, basically said, whoops, the committee got this all wrong. We didn't mean to accuse anyone of corruption. We didn't really understand the deal. Right. And we're backtracking. Effectively. Yeah. Right. And you know, so there I was, confronted by the Speaker, the Deputy Chief Whip, the Speaker of the Upper House, and all of my comrades who were saying to me, you know, Andrew, you've got to do this. I mean, for the sake of the ANC, mm. for the sake of our committee, etc., etc. And I did it. And I went to this press conference that they'd arranged and I read this statement. And afterwards, I wouldn't take any questions. And, you know, the media were completely befuddled because mm. I'd been working very closely with them mm. on whatever was happening in this investigation and they realized that I'd been turned effectively. And straight after that, the committee, the multi-party committee was due to have a workshop on the other side of Cape Town. So I got, I left the press conference, got into my car and started driving along this exquisitely beautiful road in Cape Town. Um, and as I was driving, I had the radio on and I heard myself reading out the statement at the press conference. And I just realized that I couldn't do it. So I got to this workshop and the, the most senior opposition member of the committee, um, who I was working very closely with, was sitting there um, in the garden of, of this place we were having the workshop. And he was in tears. And he looked up as I came and he said to me, so it's all over, because he had heard what I'd said. Mm. And I had by that time on my little drive, which was only about 25 minutes, I'd resolved that I had to go back on this press conference. And so I said to him, no, it's not um, that you and I hold a press conference. And I then held another press conference in which I explained the circumstances of the first one and retracted everything that I'd said in the first one. And that was really, that was the end for me. But it was still, it was very difficult. So How close were these two press conferences then in terms of time? About an hour and a half. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little bit like the UKIP leadership. <laughs> Happens quite quickly. Um, so, so and, why, and from, why, well, from, why, that, from that moment on, it was the end. I mean, I then got called to see the general secretary of the party in Johannesburg, and he informed me that they were going to kick me out of parliament. Okay. 
and told me the date they were going to do. Right. <laughs> and so I, I resigned the night before so that I could at least do it on my terms rather than react to their action. But it was, you know, for the last few months I was in Parliament, it was, it was quite difficult because I unfortunately sat right in the middle of the chamber. So I had to walk past yeah. half of the ANC members on one side or the other of, of the chamber. Yeah. And quite a few people for months... As I would walk past them, they would say, traitor, traitor, traitor. Because you just didn't do this. Yeah. You just didn't expose things that could damage the party in the public domain. Did you have any sympathy from fellow ANC members? Were there people who sort of at least thought yeah. you were doing the right thing? I mean, there were a tiny number of people. Um, interestingly, the general secretary of the party was actually quite sympathetic. <laughs> But he said to me quite explicitly, he said, you know, the president has made it clear that he's not prepared to have you in parliament if right. you're not going to drop this. Um, and there were, there were literally... And that, I that mean, was in Becky at the time. Yeah, yeah. and Becky was the president. Um, it was interesting. There were some people who, who would talk to me privately and say, we completely support what you're doing, etc., etc. But then would publicly... So the ANC also, they organised a debate because I had complained about the role of the speaker, saying that she was playing an inappropriate role because uh -huh. of her role in that press conference right. and various other things that she'd done. And so they called a debate in Parliament um, to affirm confidence in the speaker. And the reason they did that is they wanted me to vote against it because as soon as you vote against your own party, it's much easier for them to kick you out of Parliament. Mm. So I abstained on that vote. <laughs> but a lot of the people who'd privately come to me and said, we really support you, we're very sympathetic to what you're doing, stood up in that debate and supported the speaker and said the most awful things about the committee and about myself. So there were really, there were maybe two or three, maybe four people in Parliament in the ANC who truly supported me. And, and, and they were incredible. Um, I had the extraordinary experience of the then Deputy President Jacob Zuma, who is now President yeah. of South Africa, who benefited as well from the deal, unfortunately. Um, he was not only Deputy President, but he occupied a position called Leader of Government Business in Parliament. And mm -hmm. um, so he controlled sort of the political activities of the party in Parliament. He's management and legislation, like the Leader of the House. Exactly. The Very similar, yeah. yes. So he calls me in. During the day, we have a meeting of the ANC's governance committee, which is the leadership in Parliament. And they excoriated me and my committee. Mm -hmm. yeah, who, who do you think you are to suggest that any of our ministers, any of our party leadership have been involved in corruption? Um, and really, I mean, I'm not telling you the language they use because you probably <laughs> wouldn't be able to use this if I did. But it was pretty tough. And then late at night, the deputy president, Zuma, called me to his office and said to me, you know, I know what these people said today. And he was in the meeting. Just ignore them. You have a constitutional responsibility. Fulfill it. You've got to fulfill it. And I couldn't understand this at all because he was saying nothing in support in any of these meetings, mm. but was now privately offering me support. And I then discovered, post-fact, that the reason for that was he had done a deal with the French bidding company in, the con in one of the contracts. Mm. And they were supposed to pay him an annual amount of money. And they hadn't made the first annual payment. 
And when my committee started investigating the deal, he thought that this was a good way to put pressure on them to make their first payment. And quite literally, on the day I later discovered when I worked with the prosecutors, on the day they told him in an encrypted fax that the first payment would be in the agreed bank account on a particular date, he would have no contact with me whatsoever. I couldn't speak to any of his advisors, nobody. And he just cut me loose and let the then president get rid of me. So, I mean, what what then happens then? What's the path then from <laughs> from there to you know your, the film having just come out on the on the shadow okay. world and the arms race? So, because I mean, you continue to pursue it. This is the thing. Yeah. You, you didn't let go, and no. then you had to leave South Africa. Yeah. In order to. So what happened was for the, for for a while while I was working on this, I was told by various intelligence people because South Africa had at the time three intelligence agencies which effectively competed with each other. So one of them would come to me telling me I needed to be placed under protective surveillance because there were threats against my life, where in fact they just wanted to see what I was doing and try and get access to any documents I I had. Another one would come to me and say, well, you know, those other intelligence guys, we're very worried that, that they want to undermine your safety. And then I was told by another one that my house, my office, even our car was bugged. Um, and then when I resigned, I felt very strongly that this was an issue that I couldn't just let go. So my wife, who is Bangladeshi, but had been brought up in London, and I decided to leave the country for what we thought would be a couple of years while I wrote a book about the deal and its impact on South Africa's democracy, a book called After the Party. So we came to London. I started working on the book. I made contact with prosecutors around the country, found whistleblowers, um, wrote the first book. It took me a lot more than two years. Um, and it was extraordinary because when it was published, I remember my publisher in South Africa said to me, so we've printed 1,500 copies. If it does really well, we might print another 1,500 after Christmas. And, I mean, the book in the first year or so in South Africa sold 40,000 and continues to sell. It's a cracking book. I mean, I was shocked, as was the publisher. I think we were really surprised. And what happened as a consequence of that was really interesting because, you know, not a lot of people write about the global arms trade. Mm. It's very difficult to get information because of national security imposed secrecy. And the companies and individuals can be very litigious. So publishers are very wary of it. Even newspaper editors are very wary of it. So all sorts of people started approaching me after my first book came out. Mm. Um, Investigative journalists, prosecutors, working on cases involving similar people to those involved in the South African case. Um, So I started meeting all of these people all over the world and they started giving me information. And while I was writing the first book, I'd also felt that I didn't just want to write about those who'd been corrupted, Mm. my own party, uh, a lot of my own former comrades. I wanted to write about those who were doing the corrupting. So once the first book was finished, I started work on on a second book on the global trade and how it operates systemically. Mm. Um, And that was the shadow world. And then I was approached um, after the book came out by a U.S., a New York-based production company that is actually owned by Danny Glover, yeah. ironically of lethal weapons yeah. fame. But he's a, he's a big activist, and he has this wonderful production company that makes very hard-hitting political documentaries. 
and they approached me about making a film, a documentary of the book. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed to me such a good medium to try and communicate about the systemic nature of these sorts of issues. And at the same time, while I was working, in fact, on the first book, I started a little organization called Corruption Watch. Mm. Um, And we have, I mean, there are four of us. We do a lot of investigative work, predominantly but not exclusively on the global arms trade. Um, We try and make public a lot of information about corruption in the trade, about the purchasing of inappropriate weaponry for a whole range of reasons, um, and try and put that in the public domain, and then campaign mm. around enforcement regimes and around changing people's awareness of yeah. an attitude to the global arms trade. And I mean, as you were, I mean, clearly your experience in South Africa um, sort of took you into a world which you had no knowledge of at all. How do you go from that? I, I mean, are you just pulling threads to some extent, trying to find out who will talk to you, because the book and the film, mm. it's, you know, it, it's investigative journalism. Mm. Trying to get arms dealers to talk to you about what they're doing with any sort of candor must be an incredibly difficult job. Yeah, it is. And probably, you know, 95% of people we approach don't speak to us mm. because it's just not in their interest. But why, so. why did the 5% <laughs> For a strange array of reasons. So there is an arms dealer in the book um, who at the time was based in Beirut, but, but is now based in Amman, in Jordan, who was in his late 70s. Mm. He'd never been interviewed before. He'd been in the business since he was 19. He'd been recruited in, in Germany, post-war Germany. He's Lebanese-Armenian. And he'd been involved in some of the most extraordinary deals that have ever taken place. And every major conflict of those 50-plus years he'd been involved in in some way or another. And it was quite an effort to track him down. And when we eventually did, I wrote an email to him asking him whether he would be prepared to be interviewed. And his first response was to say, in my long life, I've never done anything for nothing. Why should I start now? <laughs> and it was very difficult. I had to keep on contact him, contacting him for months and months and months and then basically flattering him. Mm. And eventually, one night, he just called me and said, why don't you come and have a chat? I'm in my office in Amman on Sunday. And in his case, I think he spoke because he was probably at the time that I started bugging him. I shouldn't really use that word. Started hassling him would be more appropriate. Um, I think he was thinking about his legacy and what he'd done in the business. Because, you know, in the interview, he described what he does as being in defense of humanity. And he talked about arming the powerless to bring peace. And Did he actually believe that? I think some of them do. Um, I think, you know, I should sort of confess now that my first training was in clinical psychology. And while I did a lot of economics and finance studying after that, it probably remains the most useful thing I've ever done. <laughs> and I think quite a lot of these people, and I think the supplies in some instances to people who are at the very top of a whole lot of fields in society, have an element of sociopathy about them. They they do convince themselves yeah. of the goodness of what they're doing, even if there is quite a lot of evidence to the contrary. It's a way of sleeping at night. It's a way of sleeping at night. It also is a consequence of really not being able to comprehend the impact that one's actions and behavior yeah 
has on other people. Mm. And I think a lot of arms dealers fall into that sort of category. Well, there's a, there's a guy that you, that you did get to talk on the film, mm. the arms dealer, and you spoke at one of the, the showings afterwards, saying that he had effectively invented a life for himself. And uh, it's clearly believe, he seemed to believe it. He had convinced himself. This is, this is the most extraordinary story. So this is an arms dealer who, for a period of time, was incredibly successful in the business. Um, based himself in Poland, and and was really was making a lot of money. Um, I mean, I checked with his bankers in Switzerland, um, and when we interviewed him, he, like many of these people, told us about his remarkable military career, in which surprise, surprise, he was the central hero, mm. and he went to the extent of reading us his poetry on camera about his sort of post-traumatic stress because of various battles that he'd been involved in. And he showed us his uniforms, his medals. But, you know, the reality is in, in the book, there's sort of around 2,800 footnotes because if we say something, mm. it's because we verified it with sources who we feel 100% comfortable with. Mm. We won't publish anything or put anything in the film that we aren't absolutely certain is true. Mm. So, of course, we verified all of this. And it was all nonsense. Um, and he, so he made up this whole story. I'm actually writing a long piece for Granta magazine about it at the moment, and we're making a, a shorter film just about him he seemed like quite a character no he's an extraordinary character and he and he really he's emblematic of the the, the guys who operate as arms dealers mm. but i think the interesting thing about, that we try and bring out in the film and that comes through in the book as well is that it's not just the arms dealers it's not just the defense companies the weapons makers who are intimately involved in this trade but it's governments and very very senior politicians as mm. well and they you know the biggest the biggest arms dealers on the planet are actually the leaders of the world's largest weapons makers, yeah. of which obviously the United States is by far the biggest. And it's uh, what comes from the book and the, the film is just how insidious this, how deeply enmeshed in systems of politics and government this is. And the question that that struck me, you know, from the from the book and the film is obviously your. You're campaigning and Corruption Watch is campaigning to try and do something about this. But what do you think is what think do you think you can achieve? How, given how deeply entrenched this this is, yeah. and how many interests there are at stake from very powerful people, how much can how much can you change? Do you think? I think one always has to be hopeful, and I think I mean I suppose that the sort of the dictum that really guides our work and that guides me personally is something that the American anthropologist Margaret Mead once said, which was, and I'm not quoting her exactly, but it's along the lines of, history is changed by small groups of thoughtful, committed individuals. It has always been so, and it always will be so. And I have, I have a great belief in that. Um, and I think what we try and do, you know, I, I would be very surprised if there was material change to the nature of the global arms trade in my lifetime. Mm. But that's not the point. None of this is about me. It's about the impact that the trade has, not just on the fact 
that we so often choose war over diplomacy. Mm. Not just about the fact that this trade results in over half a million deaths a year, but also that it undermines our democracies, that it undermines the rule of law. And I saw that at first hand in South Africa, mm. that there's a massive economic opportunity cost to this trade. Um, and I think it speaks to a lot of the issues about the intersections between business and politics, because it's probably the most extreme example of that. And I think that the way in which the two have become intermeshed and the role of money in politics globally are really to the detriment of both politics and business. Mm. And I think the people who are worst off as a consequence are ordinary citizens. Mm. And so it speaks to broader issues than just the trade. So we, we, we try and address it at a number of different levels. So at one level, my honestly held view is that the global trade in weapons is not going to change meaningfully unless we change structurally the nature of our political systems. Mm. And that's a battle... That's a long term. Yeah, that we're not going to win in my or probably my children's lifetime. Mm. But it is, I think, a very important battle because I had the unique experience for four years of working for Nelson Mandela in what was obviously then the world's newest and youngest democracy in a country that had had over 350 years of conflict, of racism. Right. And we saw in those four years that it is possible to run a government in the national interest not in the interest of one political party, not in the interest of a small group of individuals, not for material gain, but truly in the national interest. Mm -hmm. And I feel enormously privileged to have experienced that, but at the same time, it's given me a view of the world that many might describe as naive or idealistic. I was just going to say that. It sounds yeah. like what you're portraying here is, a, is an idealistic vision of yeah. how things should change. Absolutely. In the absolute long term. Absolutely. So, so that's the one level at which we do work. And a lot of our work is what I would describe as quite politically engaged. Mm. So we do a lot of campaigning work and we're using the film um, to do a lot of that campaigning work. We have country-specific campaigns and, and regional and global campaigns. Um, but they are quite politically targeted. But then there is a second level at which we work, and that is to accept that the political structures as they are are not going to change in the short to medium term, mm -hmm. and that we've got to work within those, and that we've got to try and make the best of what is a pretty tawdry deal at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so we, we do a lot of work where we engage with legislators, um, with opinion formers in society, with enforcement agencies in particular, but to do what? To, what are you hoping to... The most important thing here is that there are certain aspects of the trade in weapons that can be addressed with existing legislation, uh -huh. existing multilateral and international agreements. So the trade in weapons accounts for around 40% of all corruption in world trade, yeah. which is an extreme amount. Yeah. And by doing a few very simple things by making the use of intermediaries, arms dealers, agents, brokers, by making the use of those intermediaries more transparent, by every company and government involved in an arms deal 
having to declare publicly who they're using as intermediaries, what they're paying them, and what work they deliver for doing that. Because how it works. But how before you go on to yeah, that, yeah. how would you do that? I mean, do you put it in? How do you, given it's such a shady, a shadow world, such yeah. a shady world, how do you get? Even well, if you the, implement legislation, surely people are going to get around it, aren't they? Yeah, of course. Well, this is the extraordinary thing about this trade, is that it operates with a degree of legal impunity. Mm. So, for instance, at the moment, there is a legal review that will be held in, in the British High Court in January of 2017, which is challenging whether in terms of UK law, it is actually legal for the UK government to sell weapons to Saudi Arabia. Right. Because in terms of certain arms export law, there is no doubt <clears throat> excuse me, that at the moment, while Saudi Arabia is leading a bombing campaign in Yemen, in which it's been documented all sorts of human rights abuses and violations of international rules of war mm-hmm. have taken place, that UK, current UK arms sales to Saudi Arabia are in terms of UK law illegal, but it's never been challenged in the courts. So the most important thing we try to do is to get existing legislation and agreements actually enforced. So it's not even wanting to change the legislation. It's just wanting to see it enforced. Well, that sort of underpinned my question. How yeah. You, if, if there, doesn't, there, there doesn't seem to be an incentive to actually enforce anything. I can see how you would get surface changes, yeah. legislative changes in place. But it's the enforcement which is the difficult bit, Absolutely. So, again, there are two levels at which we work to try and and push for enforcement of the regime that actually exists. So the one is we engage an enormous amount with the enforcement agencies themselves and we remind them of their obligations and their responsibilities and we publish a huge amount of material about malfeasance or violations of laws or agreements to exert pressure on the enforcement agencies. But at the same time, we've got to try and influence government to not put pressure on those enforcement agencies not to do their job. Because, unfortunately, we have a very sorry history around the world and in the UK of governments intervening to protect their own defence companies. So the most obvious case being BAE in the United Kingdom, which is a company um, that was involved for a period of time in a whole range of massive corruption scandals. Um, And I mean, we're talking billions of pounds changing hands all through intermediaries. And um, at one point, the prime minister, through his attorney general, intervened and effectively stopped the serious fraud office from investigating what was perhaps the most corrupt commercial transaction in history. Mm. And so we try and exert pressure on politicians as well. And how do we do that? questions in Parliament, obviously as much as we can get into the media and social media, but also trying to get ordinary voters to start putting pressure on their elected representatives. So, for instance, there was a time when the business secretary in the UK government, who has responsibility for promoting arms exports, a group was formed in his own constituency, and every time he appeared publicly in his constituency, representatives of this group would appear and whatever the subject of his meeting was, they would ask him questions about his ongoing support for this particular British arms company and would raise certain transgressions that this company had been involved in that were in the public domain, had never been legally challenged and why he wasn't doing anything about it. 
And at the next election, I mean, this was obviously only a small part of the reason, but he actually lost his seat. Uh-huh. And so those, again, are the two levels at which we operate, what I describe as the campaigning level and then the intervention level with opinion formers, um, those responsible for implementing and making yeah. laws. And, you know, while on the one hand, I mean, it is very easy to say, well, it still looks like a hopeless task. We have seen movement. Mm. Um, we've seen, for instance, on the issue of intermediation, which I was mentioning earlier, which would make a huge difference to the trade. Because these agents, you know, they get paid sort of 50 million pounds. And when you try and find out what they did, they sort of produced a, a two-page document on the political and economic situation in a particular country that weapons were being sold to, which clearly they weren't paid for that. They then on-pay bribes to decision-makers. That's how it works. So if you get rid of the intermediaries or you make more transparent the intermediation, you can have a huge impact on it. So the one country in which it is having massive effect is India, Hmm. where the defense business um, is racked by corruption and has been for decades. And the government brought in new legislation and companies who have used agents or dealers to attempt to pay bribes on deals have simply been excluded from bidding for contracts. Now, if somebody had said to me 12 years ago, India is going to lead the way on trying to get rid of intermediation and arms deals, I would have laughed. I would have said, yeah, you know, the chances of that are as likely as me playing rugby for England. And the reality is that's where it's happened because there have been a lot of remarkable anti-corruption campaigns in India in which literally millions of ordinary people have got involved. Pressure has been put on politicians of both the major parties and eventually it got to a point where politically it was becoming unsustainable for them to not do anything. this This sort of leads me to the other question I was going to ask, which is that... The task is, is, is massive. Uh, you, you have to focus, I guess, on particular countries or particular, yeah, or particular countries, I guess. Yeah. Um, in terms of the, your limited resources for, for yeah. corruption watch or, or indeed even the film. But so where, where are you focusing now? Well, we focus all our efforts, be it the film, um, be it the work that we do. And we do a lot of work with partners around the world. So we have a group of people who work on the global arms trade. We meet twice every year just to catch up on what we're all doing and and what we're going to do going forward. It's very easy, though, to decide which countries to focus on because you focus on the main weapons producers. So the biggest weapons producers in the world is the United States produces about a third of all weaponry that is produced in the world. So to have any impact, you've got to look to the U.S. Um, Then the United Kingdom at the moment, as we speak, and it varies over time, but at the moment is the second biggest weapons producer in the world. So again, another obvious candidate. Then you have places like other European um, countries, so Germany, Sweden, interestingly, has a big defense industry. Norway has a huge ammunition industry. Holland and Belgium have quite a lot of technology industries. Um, Israel is is a key player in the global arms trade, and especially the high-tech end of the global arms trade. China and Russia China is becoming a more important player in the global arms trade. Russia, I mean, they're still not at the levels they were during the Cold War, um, but they are an important player. And also, obviously, because of global political dynamics, China and Russia 
are important components of this. And then there are sort of emerging countries who are becoming more and more important. So Brazil and India being the most obvious, both as producers and as buyers. And then you focus on those who are the biggest buyers. So Saudi Arabia is an obvious case in mm -hmm. point. Um, and those countries where the trade has a massive effect. So countries like South Africa, Tanzania, the Balkans, obviously, um, Sri Lanka is another country that, that has been devastated by aspects of the trade, many parts of, of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so that's the way in which we decide where to focus and where we are either distributing or broadcasting the film, mm -hmm. doing a whole lot of campaigning work around that. And in terms of um, what you do next, where do you go from here? What's the, what's the next thing on your, your, your schedule? Well, the extraordinary thing about the arms trade work is that, um, I mean, this is a completely inappropriate word to use, but I can't think of the alternative. It, it's in some ways the gift that keeps on giving in the sense that on an almost weekly basis, there is some new outrage within the global arms trade. And sometimes it's purely corruption related. Sometimes it's where weapons are being sold. So as we sit here, the continued sale of weapons to Saudi Arabia, which both the UK and the US, amongst others, are doing literally as we speak, comes as Saudi is leading this coalition that is bombing Yemen. And international observers have identified over 10,000 deaths as a consequence of those bombings, of which a minimum 3,800 civilians have died, innocent civilians. A third of all these airstrikes are hitting civilian targets, schools, hospitals, places of worship, places of residence. Um, so there are constantly things that you want to be dealing with. There are constantly campaigns that you're organizing. There are constantly policy issues that we're working on. The big question for us is whether we focus in the same intensive way on another sector. So do we start doing a book? and potentially a film on, on another economic sector that plays a, a fairly similar role? Or do like we... What? Well, I mean, the financial services sector would be an obvious one for two reasons. Um, because of the importance of, of capital markets generally in the global economy, because of the influence that the financial sector has on government, because of the extent of lobbying by the financial services sector globally. Um, for a, a sort of a very light regulatory regime, despite the sort of problems that seem to recur over a long period of time. Um, that, to me, would be the obvious next step. Um, others might argue that it would be sort of resource extraction, mm. the extractive industries, but there is a lot of very good work being done on the extractive industries by organisations like Global Witness mm. um, and, and many others. So... At the moment, our focus is very much on the arms trade. From a policies perspective, we do go beyond it because stuff we learn about in the arms trade has relevance, especially for potential corruption in other sectors. Mm. So there are instances where we, we have what is broadly described as a, as a corporate impunity project. And our engagement there with um, people of influence within government and enforcement agencies goes beyond the arms trade. It's about enforcement issues relating to what is described as grand corruption globally. Um, 
And my instinct is that we'll continue with this sort of primary focus, mm. certainly through the short and medium term, because there is so much work to be done, because the film is getting so much traction in so many parts of the world that it seems like a quite unique opportunity to to bring these issues and their consequences to a much broader audience than we ever imagined we would be able to talk to. Yeah. And there's a, a, a final question. I mean, as you know, the, the part of the reason for doing this series of podcasts is to talk to people who have been involved in politics and sought to challenge and change things. And it's partly about trying to understand how change happens. What's very striking from talking to you and all the conversations that you and I have had is your sense of, you said the word idealistic earlier. And given what you've been through, you know, through, you know, the early days of um, the struggle against apartheid, becoming an ANC MP, that I got the sense, even when you were talking about it earlier, that a sense of idealism about how, you know, the, the, the government of, uh, uh, Nelson Mandela, um, but you don't seem to be jaded by this. You still seem to retain everything you've been through subsequently from that very I- I- idealistic period. Everything that you've been through, and I know from my own experience of working in politics, it jades you. You do get sure. jaded. You do get slightly cynical about things, but you seem to be relentlessly focused on what you can do. You seem to be yeah. optimistic. Absolutely, I think. That the reason for that is, I mean, as a consequence of the struggle against apartheid and Nelson Mandela. You know, if somebody had said to me in the mid-1980s, when South Africa was in a, in a terrible, terrible mess, that within 10 years, South Africa would be a democracy, the ANC would be in power, and Nelson Mandela would be the country's president. Again, I would have suggested we needed to haul out a straitjacket. And the reality is, 10 years later, that was the situation. And yes, of course, South Africa's democracy has had problems and the huge challenges, but it remains so profoundly a better place than it ever was during the apartheid era. Um, and I think a lot of my optimism comes from that experience and, and from the reality of seeing of seeing the potential of an honest and integrous politics in action, mm. even if only for a very short period of time, for a period of four years. So that when people, and people do quite pejoratively say to me when I'm talking publicly, ah, but you're nothing but an idealist. I say to them, well, if what you mean by an idealist is that I believe that things could be done better than they are now, and that things could change for the better, then absolutely, and I'll wear it as a badge of honour because I think to do this sort of work, one has to have belief that in historical sweeps of time, things do change for the better. And I believe that absolutely implicitly. And I think the other thing that is worth saying is that, you know, especially because I'm still very engaged in South African politics and I travel there a lot, and a lot of South Africans say to me, because they know about the circumstances in which I left Parliament, they say to me, don't you miss politics? Because it was a job that I absolutely loved and I thought where one could make a real difference. And I say to them, well, not at all, because I feel more politically engaged in the work that I do now, even than I did as a member of Parliament. And I think that's important for people to remember, is that change doesn't just come from within the halls of power. It does come from ordinary people working 
intelligently and with energy and enthusiasm and dare I say it, idealism. That seems like a pretty good place to finish. Um, Andrew, thank you very, very much. Not at all, thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like any more information about Andrew or his books or indeed the film, please go to our Facebook page where all the information is held. And as ever, please do go to iTunes to like and subscribe and tell everybody how great this podcast is. The next episode in the series will continue the South African theme. Uh, it's a special edition that was recorded a couple of months ago at an event I chaired in London around a forthcoming documentary called London Recruits, which looks at the story of people recruited in London in the late 1960s and early 1970s to go to South Africa, uh, posing as tourists, but to help promote the cause of the ANC. Uh, it's a fascinating film, which we hope is going to be out later this year or early next year, which we're, you know, GPG is very privileged to be involved in. More details will be on that podcast, and I hope you can join us then. Bye for now. Politics as Usual is brought to you by GPGovernance.net. Remember to subscribe, rate, or review online.